This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos is running for Congress. How does that make you feel? Just that, that statement right there. What does that do? Well, it's something I never thought was going to happen. So it's very um, humbling to know that um, I've been given this um, opportunity to um, run for Congress in for all the blessings that I have received um, in my life and in this country. So I'm very grateful. You've been on a really, I don't want to say fast, because that's not true. You've been at it for a long time, but you've you've risen in terms of your your name recognition and, and positions over the last couple of years. You know, talk about that and, and what have you learned from being in the high profile, relatively high profile role of lieutenant governor and, you know, just that, that sort of ascent that you've been on, Providence City Council president, mm-hmm. lieutenant governor, running for Congress. Talk about that journey, if you would. Yeah, you know, um, it, it sounds like it's a fast one and uh, for people looking from the outside, but for me and my family that have been going through the journey, we know that it has not been that fast. And also, we know that it has not always been an up war trajectory. I had had my ups and downs through the process. Um, we don't talk about, um, in general, in society, we don't talk about the challenges much. But in order to get to this point, I can tell you, this probably people don't remember that my first time I ran for office, I didn't win. Um, mm-hmm. I ran a second time and I, I was elected to the Providence City Council. I spent Almost uh, over ten over ten years in the Providence City Council, um, in have different roles. Then became the council president. Then uh, became lieutenant governor um, two years ago. Uh, it was very challenging to go from the district uh, level to statewide, and to make sure that I'm. Present, I have a presence in every single community in the state, making sure that I visited the 39 cities and towns of our state, making sure that we were uh, responding to the needs of those communities and understanding the dynamics of every community. Every community is different. They have their uh, different issues that affect them in making sure that we are responding to their needs. So it has been an amazing um, and a blessed um um, political career for me, but it had had its ups and downs, even though people think that it's always going up. <laughs> what, what went into the decision-making process here? Because, look, Congressman Cicilline announced that he was going to leave on June 1st. He was going to leave office, and you knew that there was going to be somewhat of a feeding frenzy in terms of people getting in. We're now up to 12 announced yeah. Democratic candidates. That list is likely to grow That's by right. at least one or two more in the coming days. And I should actually say we're up to 11 candidates with one likely to announce, and it looks like yet another one likely yes. to announce in the coming days. So what was the decision-making process like? Because you know, you've been lieutenant governor now for a few years. Yes, You're in a position where look, if you lose this race, you can go back to being lieutenant governor. So how much of this was a calculation of, hey, I've got very little to lose in terms mm-hmm. of where I am right now yeah. versus, hey, I want to be a congressperson. This is my ultimate goal. So I I think I have to go back to last year um, to start this conversation. 
I was approached by some of the um, DC political circle um, community last year, and they were asking me to run for CD2. Um, they um, were convinced that having a woman was going to be important in the race for CD2. In and had several meetings with them, conversations. At the end of the process, I told them that I was committed to uh, my run for lieutenant governor. I didn't think it was the right timing for me. Um, at that time, I had conversations with them, had conversations with Congressman Adriano Spayat from New York. And we talk about that this was not the right timing for me. Um, I Something that I thought I eventually I would like to uh, to look into, but last year I didn't feel like it was the right time. And, and then especially we knew that last year um, the even though it sounded um, that that there was a lot of support to have a female candidate on the race last year, uh, we understood that there were a, a lot of the seat was being targeted by the Republicans. And we wanted to make sure that the Democratic Party was united um, with one candidate. So it didn't feel like it was the right timing for me last year. And I had my commitment with my run for Lieutenant Governor. And it was gonna be the first time that I was gonna run outside of the district. So it was not right. And this year, well, actually one of the conversations that I had, uh, how I finished some of the conversation last year, in D.C., I told them, you know what, it's Rhode Island, anything could happen. Because they told me, you're not going to see another opening seat um, for Congress. That doesn't happen. And I said, you know, it's Rhode Island, anything could happen. But I thought that maybe in about three years or so, there may be an opportunity for an open seat. I didn't think it was going to happen right away. So when the news came, I had people approaching me, asking me to uh, run right away. I did not make the decision right away about running because I wanted to understand what it would be the implications for my family. Uh, I wanted to make sure my family, everyone was on board um, in, on this new journey. So once I, I have the process speaking with my, with my children and my parents and my husband, then um, I make the decision. And the decision I made it because I believe that going to Congress I'm going to be able to be a strong voice for Rhode Island. Um, Congressman Cicilline surprised all of us with his retirement. And we are losing a strong voice that has been fighting for democracy. And one of the things that I admire the most uh, from Congressman Cicilline is the way how after January 6th, he has been a strong fighter for democracy and has been leading that fight. Um, as someone that grew up outside of the country, um, I have more ties with um, communities outside of the United States. And I, I understand um, a lot about the implications of losing democracy or not having a strong democracy. I think we have to protect our democracy. So that's one of the reasons why I want to uh, I want to run for Congress. I want to be that voice um, that advocates for democracy. But then the issues that I have been working on since my uh, beginnings in the Providence City Council, I'm going to have the opportunity to advocate on those issues and also to fight for resources for Rhode Island um, with those issues. One of those is housing. 
As you know, housing has been one of the issues that I have advocated for since uh, my time in the local government and now at the state level. And I want to take the fight of the definition of homelessness to Washington now. I think it's about time that we get hot to have uh, better uh, definitions of homelessness in to make sure there are more resources available to prevent homelessness and not just wait until someone is in a dear uh, uh, in a really tough um, situation in order to have resources available to help them. So housing is going to be another issue that I'm going to be advocating for um, in Congress. Then we have the student loan um, fight, which they had been already um, several Congress members that had been fighting for, for um, student loan um, relief. But I also want to bring the student loan fight and the connection to housing. And it's what I have been doing now with the legislation that um, Senator Coleman and Rep. Spigman introduced um, this year uh, in, uh, here in Rhode Island on behalf of my office. And that is to make sure that when someone is looking for an apartment, uh, we're not looking at their uh, records, if someone has been justice involved, we don't go beyond 10 years as long as it wasn't a, a, a violent crime. And for individuals uh, that have issues with their credit, that we don't look at more than three years. And, and let me tell you more about the credit and the three years. So there are many young professionals right now that have a job that they can pay their rent, but Every time that they're going to apply for an apartment, the credit may have been um, damaged because of the student loans. And I want to make sure that they're able to find an apartment. And something that um, the governor and I were speaking with a couple of senior citizens at Adafan in West Warwick, and I gained a new perspective about how a student loan is affecting the older population, we were talking to these um, two ladies and they were telling us how they cannot even think about retirement because they're paying back student loans. They were co-signers for their kids and they had been having a lot of challenge. And they told us, you know, I cannot even think about retirement right now. And they said, whenever I can, I send in $100 to pay them. But this is affecting a larger population than what we had been normally thought of. So I want to continue to fight for um, student, uh, student loans that relief and also with the connection with housing, a house that's affecting individuals that probably would like to buy a home, but their credit got ruined because of student loans, right? So that's the fight. Um, when it comes to a woman's right to choose, that's another area in which I have been a strong advocate for. And I want to take the fight to Washington to advocate that a decision about what happens with a woman's body is a decision that she has to make with her doctor and nobody else should be in that room. It's a very personal decision and it has a lot of medical implications. So it should be a decision between her and her doctor. Another issue that I have been a strong advocate for is for gun safety legislation. I want to take that fight to Washington also and to continue to fight to reinstate the ban on assault weapons. So uh, I want to protect uh, Social Security and Medicare. So there's so many issues that I can 
be a strong voice for Rhode Islanders and a strong voice um, in, in Washington. Taking it home here, you basically ran on, it wasn't official, of course, because it's not how the Constitution of Rhode Island is is, is set up, but you mm-hmm. ran on ostensibly a joint ticket with Governor McKee. What does Governor McKee think about your run for Congress? Have you had a chance to talk from him? Will he endorse you? So I let him know at the beginning when I was exploring uh, to run for Congress, I let him know, hey, I just want to start exploring this. I want to be up front so you don't hear this from someone else. Had a very good conversation. He told me, just keep me posted on, on your decision. Once I decided to run and let him know, I have not had the conversation asking for his endorsement yet. Um, there's still a crowded field uh, going on right now. Uh, many of his friends and supporters are um, also considering running. Um, I don't think it's fair for me to ask him that question right now uh, for endorsement. We're trying to wait to see who's in and who's out finally. Eventually, I'm planning on uh, asking for his endorsement. And the other thing is just knowing that um, since he's a resident of CB1, I'm going to be asking for his vote. So I'm going to be making my case for his support and his vote. And eventually I will have that conversation with him. I want to go back to something you said about the, the potential to run for CD2. And yes. you mentioned DC political figures. Who is that? Oh, the, at that time, I heard from the Bullpack, which is uh, um, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Pack. Um, were very encouraging of me running at that time. Um, had a couple of conversations with Emily Sliss at that time and had a conversation with um, Congressman Adriano Spajat, uh, who is a congressman from New York. So in in CD one, you know, it's when we look at the geography of it, it's a it's a you know it's a diverse district where you've got to be on the ground in portions of Providence and mm-hmm. portions of Aquidneck Island, and then through really a, a lot of quite frankly a lot of different aspects of our very small state. Yes. What's what's the one theme in terms of outside of just big issues? But what's the one theme or what's the one thing that as a congressperson from Congressional District 1, you would identify and say, hey, this is the most pressing need when it comes specifically to this district, whether it's allocating funds and bringing them back to the district or being an ambassador for a major need. It may be one of those big themes that you just said, but what yeah. would you say it is right now? So it's, to say death in is really um, it's hard because there are so many issues that are affecting the community. One thing that is across the board is housing. You know, housing um, and the and the high cost of living is uh, things that are affecting the district in general right now. Uh, but a lot of the concerns that those communities have is are, are around housing. Um, then I can tell you that in the CB one, there is a strong support for a woman's right to choose also. Uh, it's a very important issue for CD1. But um, I'll, if I can give you three right now, I'm going to say housing and how that is translated into high cost of living. I will say the uh, women's right to choose and also gun safety legislation. 
you were on Newsmakers over the weekend yes. with with Ted Nisi, and he asked you a question about something. I remember this Zoom call because I was on it actually, where it was a, right after George Floyd, yes, uh, the murder of George Floyd, and mm-hmm. this this is the defund the police question, yes, and you know I wonder because your answer for the, anyone who hadn't heard it was basically that you know you were saying, look, I was calling for reallocation of funding mm-hmm. based on you know, the the expanding to the gold team, as it's called, a kind of a, a mental yes. health type response team in Providence Police. But I wonder this, why not say, hey, yeah, I did call for defunding the police, mm-hmm. but in that, po- in that political, in that societal moment, that was yeah. the right thing to do. And my position has evolved, if it has evolved. Well, I wonder, you know, why not in, in a situation like that say, you know what, in that moment, we were in one place and I've evolved in terms of my position. Is that a fair thing yeah. from from your standpoint or is that a misread on on my part that you never, you know, you never really meant defunding the police at any level? So it, I have no problem in admitting when I made a mistake. I think that is something that uh, for politicians, people try to um, point out as being, oh, you're a, a flip-flopper. And I think we need to normalize in general that um, elected officials can change their mind once they have new information. I have no problem admitting when I made a mistake. Actually, one of the books that I have enjoyed the most reading is Think Again by Adam Grant that tells you is the power of knowing what you don't know. I think that everyone, especially everyone, everyone in elected office should read that book. So I have no problem to admit if I made a mistake. The way how I recall the question being asked is different as how it was presented to me in Newsmaker. And I'm not saying that they are wrong. I know that last year during the campaign, one of my opponents kind of re uh, uh, shuffle the question around and put a video out there. So I'm not sure if this, the way how I recall the question, I was answering how I would, um, how I would, put resources to help the in a budget that would help the police that was not going to be just funding the police without funding resources to support the police. That's how I recall the question. Again, as I said, I've got to go back and listen to the original uh, video and audio and, and watch it. I have no problem admitting if I make a mistake. At the end of the day, I want you to look at my record, right? I funded the police every single time. I voted for about 10 budgets that included funding for the police every single time. I advocated for and funded new police academies when others didn't want them to be funded because I understand the challenges that our police department was facing at that moment, and especially because of the work that our police department was doing to diversify the workforce. I think that was very important. So if you look at my record, my record speaks for itself. I never, never voted to defund the police. There's some big picture issues that when, when if you were elected to Congress and sworn in, that are a little different than some of the things that we face here in Rhode Island. And it's, of course, on the global stage, one side of it is environmental, climate mm-hmm. change. Um, and really, I think less... You know, there's a lot of talking points around that, but on a practical st- from a practical standpoint, as a congressperson, where would you stand on the conversion of our 
entire world essentially but at least in our mm-hmm. country from from fossil fuel driven to renewable energy what does that timeline look like what's a realistic timeline as a congressperson that you would apply to any decisions in terms of saying hey we need to get off of fossil fuels we need to not drill anywhere in our own territory and we need to shift towards renewable energy what does that timeline look like what's your philosophy there um, I have to tell you, you have to be at the speed of trust, right? As I say, if we are not able to um, have a conversation uh, talking about the importance of our uh, switching into uh, renewable energy, and we don't have a plan in which we are including those workers that have been working in, in, in the uh, um, in industry that are contributing to um, our climate change, if we don't assure them that they're going to be part of this new new way of um, producing energy, that they're going to their families are going to have jobs and they're going to be secure, then it's, there's not going to be a timeline that makes sense for anybody. Mm-hmm. I truly appreciate the way how here um, how we're doing it right now, working with the labor movement. Um, and making sure that the labor movement is part of this new uh, energy uh, development and and wind energy and any other alternative. Um, I think that's the right way of doing it because that creates trust and ensure the workers that we're not trying to destroy their families, but we're looking out for them. Right. It's a real balance. I know we're uh, up against the clock here very quickly. It's very quickly on this issue is like, come on. But <laughs> the, the U.S.'s role on the world stage, look, we've got Ukraine right now, obviously mm-hmm. major situation, many things happening on the continent of Africa in West Asia, Israel, Palestine, even in the global south right now, there are major things playing out via sanctions, via proxy wars, troops on the ground. What role should the U.S. play in terms of uh, managing the world order. Okay. So I have to say the first thing the U.S., um, what we need to do in our um, in the United States is to protect our democracy and, mm. and make sure that we have a strong democracy because there are other countries, other nations looking at us in be, as being a beacon of democracy, right? So we have to make sure that we have a strong democracy in the United States. Uh, that's one uh, number one thing. Then looking at other uh, nations, I, I, a big supporter of Ukraine. I think we need to continue to show our support for the Ukrainian people and make sure that we support them as much as we can. Because Ukraine right now has been fighting for democracy. They've been fighting for us. If they lose this war, there's going to be another nation after, and eventually we're going to be involved in a conflict directly involved. So I believe that we need to continue to provide as much resources and support as we can to Ukraine. All right. Very last question here. Um, Are you having fun doing this so far? I am. Actually, yes. I'm having (laughs) a really good time um, going through this process. I'm going to be going back to um, the voters now of the District 1, which goes from one socket to Jamestown. So it's almost like running a, a campaign statewide, right? And um, asking them for their uh, vote and their support to represent them in Congress in, in 
uh, have a great team. They, we're going to be announcing the team soon. And, and it's going to be, um, and we're making sure that we are doing this the right way. I'm interested in running a positive and upbeat campaign. Talk to the voters about what I bring to um, to the table, um, my background, my experience, my personal life story, and in the blessings and the opportunities that I have received in this nation. So I, I love talking about um, how blessed I have been in this country. So that, that's going to be my campaign. Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos, candidate for Congressional District 1. Talk soon. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the University of Rhode Island Online, who are offering a cannabis certificate program. The legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last year can open doors for your career. If you're already in the industry or wondering what is the best path to break into the cannabis field, the University of Rhode Island has a program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online and it can be completed in just two semesters. Learn more by visiting uri.edu slash online slash cannabis or give them a call at 401-874-5280.